Hey folks, Dr. Ed Williams here. As you know, I'm absolutely passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine as well as mentoring those who are serious about getting to the next level uh, in business and in life. My podcast here, in my podcast series, I share many of the lessons I've learned as an entrepreneur, small business owner. I've also written a book called The White Coat Entrepreneur, where I tell all, and um, especially those that are relevant to uh, our uh, professional life and really uh, are relevant to all aspects of business. Uh, check out my website at DrEdwinWilliams.com. Today's topic is, so you're thinking about opening a surgery center or investing in a surgery center. I'm going to tell you some of the lessons that I learned from the past 20 years of as a founding partner and opening a uh, surgery center and hopefully be able to share with you so you don't make the same mistakes that I made. Um, next month, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Stephen Danes, who's in California. He was one of my former fellows in 2012. He's had an amazingly successful practice. And the topic next month is going to be about you know, how do you get your practice going in a highly competitive market and how do you get noticed? So today, let's get going here with the surgery center. Um, bottom line is I've probably lost more sleep over our surgery center uh, than I have in any other aspect of my business. Uh, and there are times when uh, it was a nightmare, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> would I do it over again? Yes. You don't get anywhere by taking risk without taking risk. And I've learned a lot of lessons that made me a be better business person, which I'm hoping to share with you. So literally dozens of lessons over the past 20 years. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, my story in history was uh, I went to practice in 1992. From 1994 to 96, I just worked on getting busy, very busy in practice, and um, <clears throat> saw all the bureaucracy and the inefficiency and expense and frustration dealing with the hospital center. Um, and so my plan was to build a building at some point. Um, but, you know, I learned some lessons from my mentors. Uh, there's a, uh, Dr. Ray Elliott, who was a plastic surgeon and Dr. Jean Tardy was my mentor. And what I learned was that the hospitals want the insurance cases. They don't necessarily want the cosmetic cases because they can't really make any money on the, on the aesthetic or cosmetic cases. And so if you have some kind of insurance volume, you can use that leverage, if you will, to get good rates for your cosmetic cases. And that's what I did. I used that to get an hourly rate. I was an efficient surgeon. Um, and that's what I did. But uh, the writing was on the wall. And, and you know, a, a lot of people were doing surgery in their offices, you see. They were, they were putting these little rooms in and doing surgery. And we did, did such. We basically fit it up so that we might be able to get accredited. But we had anesthesia providers in my office. And there were a couple in 1995-96, there were a couple deaths around the country from uh, unscrupulous doctors who were doing things they really shouldn't be doing in their office. And the writing was kind of on the wall that we needed some kind of a guideline, some kind of regulation. And um, I went out to visit my friend, my buddy, dear friend, mentor, Dr. Vito Quattel in 1995. And he just put a, uh, a surgery center in. In, in the upstate New York area. And I always listen to Vito because he's a really smart guy. Um, more, more to that later. But so let me just talk about the different routes to go with accreditation. You know, I, I was inspired by him and I thought maybe 
I should do this. I was a young guy at that point. I got a whole career ahead of me. So there's JCO, which is the joint accreditation, uh, typically accredited hospitals, but hospitals, but they also have an arm for ambulatory surgery centers. They were always known to be a little more onerous than um, the independent agencies. And so there was AAAC, uh, AAAHC, which was um, started by facial plastic surgeons as kind of uh, another alternative uh, thought to be more user friendly. And then there's Quad H, Quad SF, which is AAAA SF, which was started by the plastic surgeons uh, as another alternative. So the, the last two were typically thought to be a little more user friendly. Um, and both of those, you could get either get accreditation for uh, non-insurance based cases or uh, or you could get accreditation for that included Medicare. Now, one might say, well, I don't want to do Medicare, but I do want to do other insurance. The reality is you would have to negotiate with every single insurance company to get uh, on board with them accepting you. Um, and so the, the really the thinking at that time was, and still is, if you're Medicare approved, you'll be accepted by everybody. So you really can't just get accredited. If you're going to do any insurance cases, you'd end up having a, a, a separate negotiation every single time on a case, case by case basis. Uh, so you're probably better off getting accepted, you know, by Medicare and getting the Medicare approval. The problem with that is it's another whole layer of onerous uh, mandates and regulation. Uh, but once you jump through that hoop, you can provide to other carriers. In some states, there's also a thing called a CFN or Certificate of Need, and that was the case in New York State. But there was a lot of pressure from the public sector back then. There was a lot of public pressure from the public sector back then um, to allow doctors to have an ambulatory surgery center because they could do it more cost effectively than in the hospital. So the insurance companies were definitely in favor of this. And, you know, we as providers were all told you should do this because you can make a few bucks, right? But also have some level of efficiency. And that was very appealing to me. Um, we didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize it at the time, but the ambulatory surgery centers were getting paid you know, about a third of what the hospitals were for the same CPT codes. And hospitals argued at that point that, well, we have a sick patient's. And so there was some acceptance of that. Um, but so if you went, so my lessons learned were, one, that the hospitals made a lot more money than we did. Number two, if you got Medicare sanctioned uh, through AAAHC or the other agencies, you could provide to all carriers. And it would be a lot more efficient than trying to have a negotiation over every single case. Uh, number three is the cost of running, the other lesson I learned was the cost of running an ACS was a shock for me. I mean, I'd run a practice, but to comply <clears throat> to uh, running a surgery center, uh, you've got seasoned registered nurses. You can't just pull a nurse out of, you know, right out of nursing school. Um, their salaries were very high. And then the cost of having anesthesia, you know, anesthesiologists, uh, anesthesiologists, I will call it you know, the prima donnas, I should say, the ones who walk out of the building at two o'clock in the afternoon, um, you know, in the stronghold that they had in certain communities. I mean, in our community, they had <clears throat> non-compete. So none of the CRNAs could provide. You had to work with a local group. I would have the CR on cosmetic stuff, but but none of the insurance stuff. So 
the anesthesia was, uh, and I, I got story after story after story of how I kind of got screwed by anesthesia. Once we learned this, now we have a six month out with our contract. But back then, you know, the 11th hour, it's a month before our contract is up and anesthesia is, uh, is upping, you know, what their annual um, guarantee was going to be, like $100,000. And, you know, you'd lose money the next year over anesthesia and lose sleep, of course. So it was, uh, that was a challenge. Uh, um, the cost of running the surgery center. Lesson number four is the business model was very highly variable for ambulatory surgery centers. For example, multiple specialty surgery centers struggled the most. And the reason why, if you think about it, you have to have specialized uh, equipment for ENT, specialized equipment for orthopedics. Imagine trying to have all this different equipment, four to six different rooms, all the different specialized nursing, and uh, be able to make money. And it's hard. Um, so what we learned back then, and what I learned back then is the single specialties did the best. Again, you, if you provide for urology, you got one set of equipment. You do ophthalmology, you got one set of equipment and an economy of scale to do the same case over and over and get a little more efficient. So the single surgery centers actually did the best. Um, <clears throat> surgery centers in general, including your own, cannot make money on plastics because You've got a three-hour, let's say a three-hour facelift, right? Or three or four-hour facelift in eyes or something. There's only so much per hour you can charge. Uh, whereas the one- and two-hour cases, they, the reimbursement was better. So it's hard to make money on plastics, cosmetic plastics, that is, aesthetic cases. The sweet spot for making profit are cases that one to two hours long, 60 to 90 minutes, you got a surgery center with about 70% utilization, and you've got complementing specialties. For example, we had a period of time where we were doing ENT and plastics. We had a time where we were doing, you know, which, which is now, basically, we're doing plastics and podiatry. And they kind of complement each other because you can, you can offload different times. Um, you know, podiatry can often do things with blocks and, and local and not have anesthesia. The real sweet spot in the surgery centers are four room surgery centers. Okay. Um, and the reason why is that it's an economy of scale thing because you can have one anesthesiologist su supervising four CRNAs and you're making revenue in each one of those rooms uh, and dividing that over one and supervising anesthesiologist. And, and um, so the most successful in the country are the orthopedic surgeons. Um, <clears throat> I had a buddy of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon. He said to me, he goes, honestly, he goes, I I'm embarrassed how much money we make in our surgery center. And so the orthopedic surgery centers rock. And especially those that are now, you know, venturing into total joints and joint resurfacing because the reimbursement is insane. And they're able, they're, they're able to take the time to renegotiate with the insurance companies because the insurance companies are, get, are getting clobbered by the hospitals on, on these cases. But when it comes to other specialties like ENT and urology, they can make it. I mean, if right now, ENT and urology has been pushed back into the office. They make more staying in the office than they do in the operating room. So their desire to be in the operating room drops. So you actually need more providers in a group to make it make sense. And I think in ENT and I think in urology, you need probably 10 to 15 providers to make a, a two-room or especially a four room, but you, but you need a, you need a number. You can't just do this with a four person urology group and expect to make it profitable.
So in 1999, I established a two-room surgery center. Um, <clears throat> we opened it a part-time, and the, the insurance reimbursement was okay, you know, at that time. It was okay. It wasn't great. Um, but the benefits to the practice to me was the efficiency and the volume of what I could do in the cosmetic stuff that I could, couldn't possibly do in the hospital. The other thing is it gave me an option. Like, I wasn't held hostage to the hospital. I had another choice, and the hospital couldn't just keep continue to jack rates. Although I had a good, because I was efficient, they made money on our insurance cases, so they worked with me and gave me good, um, good rates. The downside is that <clears throat> Medicare AAAHC and the accreditation agencies, especially AAAHC at the time, and I'm, I'm not speaking out of line here, I'm telling you the facts, was becoming more and more onerous and more difficult. And there was a strong lobby by anesthesiologists to, uh, to push out CRNAs. Um, and that was, uh, that was a struggle. And we were only running at about 40% capacity, but the intangible benefit was we could do our cosmetic cases um, <clears throat> much more efficiently than I could in the hospital. And that was a huge benefit. So uh, right around 2002 or 2003, you know, <clears throat> I had a consultant come in and kind of look at our numbers. And we were doing about 700000 um, in revenue in the surgery center, excluding anesthesia. But it was, a, it was a tight margin, and we were only running at about 40% capacity. So we ran a pro forma in the surgery center. If we could just get up to 70%, 80%, um, it could be very significantly profitable. So we converted it from a C-Corp to an LLC so that we could have membership interest and we could attract or try to attract ENT, plastics, and podiatry. Um, we, we could have gone to other specialties, but the reality is we knew – it was important to stick with one or two specialties and not try to spread ourselves too thin. Um, what, it, what were the lessons that I learned from this, trying to attract people? And we got them to invest in, gosh, it, 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 it nominal amounts of money just to be part. Because we knew, we thought if they would invest, right, a doctor's going to invest in the surgery center. He's going to use it or she's going to use it. And it's going to add to the bottom line and get our, get our, um, our numbers up there. Lesson learned from this by, you know, allowing others to come in and invest. Um, doctors totally overestimate their volume. I kind of, you know, you would meet with a, an ENT person. They'd say, yeah, I got 20 cases a month or whatever it was, or, or a podiatrist. And um, I kind of equate it to their male parts. You know, doctors always want to overestimate. In reality, when they came, their volume wasn't near what they said their volume was. That's number one. Number two there were inconsistencies, the inconsistencies and consistencies in the volume ramifications uh, made really wreaked havoc on profit. I mean, if you had someone come in, they do one case and you got anesthesia there, you're getting crushed. You needed to have three or four cases. You needed at least a four hour block that was filled consistently by someone to make it worth their time. And doctors don't give a damn. I mean, they all work around their own. And I get it. They all work around. But even just because someone was vested in the surgery center, and this blew my mind, didn't mean they would use it. We had one podiatrist, this is crazy, that used to love the rah-rah at the hospitals and the nurses would rub his back and, you know, and he was a, he was a high volume guy and we never captured his volume, even though he vet invested in the surgery center because he loved the whole hanging out in the hospital thing. Uh, to me, I'd rather 
I'd rather work on volume and make more money, but that's just me. Um, so just because someone is vested doesn't mean they're going to use it. And probably the biggest lesson I learned back then was uh, my lack of understanding of leadership and the costs associated with not having a good leader in the place. Um, I didn't know how to create a culture of winning and accountability. I've learned so much in the past many years. And leadership cannot be done by abdication. You have got to be involved. And I am now. I have. There are staff challenges. There are provider feelings toward the leadership. We have one doctor who basically, uh, and I didn't, unbeknownst to me, and, and, and I can't blame them, but we had one uh, surgery center manager who was difficult to deal with a little bit. And as a result, we lost this guy's whole volume over it. And uh, there was no going back. And this all happened without me um, really even knowing it. And it wasn't until a few years later that I ran into them. And they said, you know what? So-and-so was so difficult to work with. And, you know, that really affected our volume. That was a big lesson I learned in the surgery center. Now, um, I am very involved with the leadership. Uh, I have meetings where they're reporting to me, you know, what's up, KPIs, who they coach. Uh, there's really not much I don't know what's going on. And that takes time. And doctors don't like to give up their time. So if you're going to abdicate your leadership responsibility to somebody else, uh, you better make sure that you're following up with them. And there's a chain of accountability. So you make sure that they're, what's happen- happening is what's happening. And you can do that, by the way, if you do it the right way. I just didn't know what I was doing back then. Um, jealousy, another another lesson learned. I had no idea. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I thought that, well, bring the ENT guys on and bring the plastics guys on, give them an efficient environment and allow them to, uh, you know, own some of it. And um, even though I was a majority shareholder, there was a lot of jealousy. I didn't realize that there would be jealousy over this. But, you know, your your colleagues in town don't want to think that they're helping you, quote, you know, get rich or whatever that is, even though that's not going to happen owning a surgery center. So. You know, it's very difficult to make these surgery centers profitable. And I had no idea that there would be this jealousy thing. And it's very hard, and especially in plastics. Oh, my gosh. They don't want to support you because you're the competitor. And they would never use your surgery center. And then this ego thing, you know. Um, The next lesson, lesson number six that I learned during that time frame, the early 2000s through to about 2008, was that the difference in in reimbursement was egregious. Hospitals were seeing three, four, five times the same uh, reimbursement for the same CPT code that we were seeing in the surgery center. Uh, what happens, most people don't realize it, but in hospitals, like, you know, they have these things called the charge sheet. So every single item that you use, a suture, a screw, a drape, is being marked, billed and marked up by the hospital plus the rate that they get. And that's why they get so much we get a one negotiated CPT code. So if you use uh, one, uh, um, you know, whatever, three, uh, three, one, two, two, five, or, or, or three, four, six, oh, or something like this, um, that code gets a number. And that's all you're going to get paid. Now, you can do carve outs and negotiate for a little higher on these things. But the bottom line is, you're not getting itemized added on every single thing you do. All the sutures, you get one CPT code. And so, uh, there's a huge difference in what hospitals are getting. The other thing is the cost of implants are always covered in the hospital. We could have a, a, a tripod fracture, for example, or, or let's say a mandible fracture. One of my partners was doing something 
for that. And the CPT code would allow $1,200, okay, for that. Um, the plate could cost 900 You can't do those cases in a surgery center because you're going to lose money. I mean, the margin's 10%, so you got to basically do 10 other cases to pick up, you know, the difference in this loss. Whereas in a hospital, <clears throat> they may say $7,500 for the same case, including the money that they're getting for the plate. So, and the other lesson with that and the difference between the hospital reimbursement is that we didn't have, we just didn't have the leverage um, as a small surgery center that you did in the hospital. And that's why you see these 50 person or 100 person, person orthopedic groups. You know, I've talked to them and, and I say, why do you guys just keep getting bigger and bigger? And they said, because we need leverage against the hospital. So um, that's kind of what was going on at the time. And then 2008, we had the, you know, the great recession, right? And there were some things that happened to me that were positive. Um, we had, I added a plastic surgeon as a partner. Um, and that was a big plus because then we could now, we could now grow the utilization in the surgery center organically through our practice. And that really has been in the last year or so where we have excelled. We have stopped trying to get other people to come in and use a surgery center because most of them thought they were going to see a lot of money. And most of them did where there was jealousy and inefficiency. Our success now has been growing it organically. So the first step in that direction is when I took on a partner who's a plastic surgeon. Um, we, uh, you know, we also had podiatry back then, and we were we were cutting back on some of their time because they were inefficient, and we've reworked that. But what happened subsequent to that in 2010 <clears throat> was somewhat disastrous for the rest of medicine. But I'll tell you how it, why it's relevant with the surgery center. So the Affordable Care Act passes in 2010, right? For those who want to understand it a little bit better, read America's Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill. The book is brilliant. Uh, it gave me a better, much better understanding what's going, what went on at that time. Here's a summary. It was expansive, a, a, a huge expansion of government to the tune of $1 trillion over the next 10 years. Pharma uh, benefited to the tune of about $250 billion, a quarter of that. The insurance industry, $250 billion, a quarter of that. Hospitals, $250 billion, a quarter of that. And the government, um, because all of the, uh, uh, to the tune of at least two fifty, because they were going to manage all this additional revenue that was coming in. Quote, everyone was going to be covered, right? So pharma was licking their chops. Insurance industry was licking their chops because they had more bodies to cover. And hospitals became um, bigger, more powerful. And uh, that is why it led to, you know, acquisitions of physician practices. What was told at the time is what I called the biggest lie in medicine. Um, and that is that primary care was going to do better under this, right? Do you remember the, the AMA signed on with Obama and they, and, and they, because, because um, the uh, uh, primary care docs were going to do better under this? It's one of the biggest lies uh, that was told to doctors. Um, small groups. And uh, ended up either folding or being, quote, bought by hospitals. Um, physicians basically lost autonomy. And that's why, as I mentioned, the orthopedic groups are getting to, you know, there are 70, 80, 100 people in the group. Hospital acquisitions occurred all over um, and, um, and basically started buying up practices. As a result, hospitals had a lot more leverage, a lot more reimbursement for renegotiation, um, and um, and and the insurance companies did better. And it made how is this relevant? It made it really hard for us to negotiate, you know, with our surgery center. We had very little leverage. We were a two room surgery center. Um, 
I'll tell you a story. Uh, you know, my, my partner was doing breast uh, reduction surgery, which is insurance um, uh, reimbursable thing in our surgery center. It took him a two, two and a half hours, I guess. I don't even know exactly, but that's about what it took. Um, we met, you know, we kept, and then if you take our functional nasal cases, it was the same exact issue. We were seeing, you know, $1,200, $1,500 from the biggest carrier in our area. All right. Those same cases in the hospital, $7,500. That's what the hospitals were getting reimbursed. So we tried twice. We, we, we would meet with the C, we met with the CEO and I don't want to say the name of the company, but someone we've known forever and a physician, by the way. And he, and he would say, please, please don't stop doing the insurance cases because you know, you guys are doing great work and it's really helping the plan, which was a PPO and physician, you know, based and owned and all this nonsense. And we're, we're, we want to work with you. We want to work with you on reimbursement. The reality it is, reality was they were just blowing smoke up our backside because nothing ever came of it. Okay. The hospitals were still making insane amounts of money because of the leverage they had. And they would basically yes us to death and a year would go by and nothing would happen. The biggest challenges we had between 2012 and 18 was profitability wasn't great in our surgery center. So again, we're doing a mix. We're doing a mix of mostly, you know, uh, maybe 20% insurance, 80% cosmetic. Our profitability in surgery center wasn't great. It was about 10%, but growth was very difficult. It was hard to get other people in. So we, you know, but we were only running at about 40, 45% capacity for the two rooms. Um, We felt during that time frame that we were being held hostage to the insurance uh, cases, not only in the surgery center, but our practice, because we felt obligated. Now we wanted to take care of insurance cases because we felt an obligation to be part of the community. We did a lot of skin cancer and, and I didn't, but my partner did. We did a lot of functional noses and we wanted to be able to do them in, in our efficient surgery center. But they were causing 80% of the, the, the headache and inefficiency. And in fact, in our practice, all of that volume was commingled. Um, and we realized it was hurting the growth of the aesthetic practice. So, um, and, and why is that? If you, because let's take a patient concierge, patient care coordinator. They can't differentiate when trying to help an insurance patient breast reduction versus an insurance AUG or breast AUG, which is a cosmetic patient, right? Um, you could use the same thing in facial plastics as well. And as a result, it was undermining our ability to grow um, the aesthetic practice. So the biggest challenges we had were really, you know, we were only running about 40, 45% capacity in the surgery center. We, we felt like we needed to continue to do the insurance cases because it really kept the surgery center going, but yet we knew it was undermining the aesthetic practice. Um, and that was a challenge. And, and then, you know, 2000 moving into the, uh, and the reason why it was a challenge is because we knew the cosmetic practice were considerably more profitable in the practice business model, not in the surgery center business model, the surgery center business model, the insurance cases were more profitable, even though we were getting a fraction of what the hospital was getting, which was totally egregious in 2016, 17, the non-surgical, like our what I call our Rejuva Center, Botox, all the injectables, lasers, was rocking it. Um, and we separated, we decided to separate the surgical practice in time and space um, 
from the we have an insurance division, which is seen in uh, the patients are seen in a separate area, separate staff, and then we have the aesthetic practice. If you if you take one thing away from this, that was one of the best decisions we ever made because it then allowed growth of the aesthetic practice without the shackles of the insurance practice, and that is allowed. That was one of the biggest things we ever did with the surgery center because it also grew our volume on the aesthetic cases as well. So that that's a pearl. Why is it relevant? Because during the same time frame, we learned another uh, tremendous lesson. We learned the lesson had to do with um, our accreditation was due for the surgery center around 2019. Now, meanwhile, we're trying to grow the cosmetic practice. Now, when I say accreditation, this was Medicare. So it's the Medicare AAAC, and it's very onerous and a pain in the butt to do. Um, the woman who had run our surgery center had done a pretty good job for the last eight or 10 years, quote, managing it, um, was getting a couple years away from uh, retiring. And she asked me if she could moonlight a little, and she'd done a decent job with it so far. So I gave her permission to do that. What ensued over the next year was disastrous. The morale started to go down. She was less present, and she was managing by abdication uh, and backfilling with a lot of extra staff. Staff costs were going up. Our profitability was going down, and our sta- as a percentage of our, our gross revenue, our staff costs were over 30%. Now, in a business that runs a very tight margin, you start pushing staff costs up over 30. And at one point, it actually got over 40%, and that's when we were in the, in the, in the, uh, in the red. Our anesthesia providers were becoming more indispensable, and they were, they were using their leverage on us. They weren't part of the team, but it really came down to lack of leadership. Um, lack of leadership and our our, our, man, sir, our manager of the surgery center. Um, the see um, also the uh, let me see here my notes. Um, yeah, so in the in the citywide anesthesia was locked up by the group, so we had very few people choices. April two thousand nineteen was the perfect storm for our surgery center. Um, we had we had to get through accreditation and our current CEO at COO at the time kept coming to me saying, listen, I know you're having a problem with this. And I said, look, the morale is down in the surgery center. Our profitability is down. Um, and that to me is indicated. We got indication. We got weak leadership. And she kept saying to me, please just let's get through accreditation. And we hung on for six months to get through accreditation. We passed accreditation by flying colors, but in 2019 was a perfect storm. We got past accreditation. We're losing money. Um, and our surgery center manager retired and we brought someone else in who is not a great leader. Um, and what happened, uh, was disastrous at that point. Um, we had a patient who had to be brought back to the operating room and it was a Wednesday and I was seeing patients and my partner was one of my partner's patients. Um, anesthesia left for the day. It was like three o'clock. I think there was a bleed, a hematoma or something. And they, they basically, the anesthesia provider uh, basically said, I'll come back for $1,500. Um, and it got, it got more and more toxic with dealing with them. And then eventually we had this one disaster that happened on a Wednesday afternoon with our staff and our team. And I asked our COO to go downstairs and walk, uh, other, other than a few of our loyal people, they've been there forever. Uh, the manager, some of our other people who were in, involved with this whole thing and anesthesia, walk them to the door, tell them it's their last day. Um, and we closed the surgery center for two months. 
uh, it was, um, and I think what happened within the next month or so, so, you know, uh, God must have intervened or something because we uh, brought on, we were able to find, uh, we seriously thought about closing it for good. I'd about had it with the, the headaches of management there and the difficult difficulty in competing with the hospitals and profitability. You know, the next two months, so we did, we did our cases across at the surgery center owned by the hospital. And it was, it was absolutely torture. And I realized, you know, come hell or high water, I had to open the surgery center back up. We hired the right leader. And uh, for the last year and a half, the place has been rocking. So it all comes down to back to the leadership thing again. Um, we went through the process. We, you know, in the, when we first hired Tammy, our manager, um, and uh, she went through, eliminated all of the streamlined all our processes, uh, eliminated all the waste, put together per diem team. We opened back up in 2019 in July, um, and costs now a year and a half later are down 20. Uh, our um, staff costs are down to 23 to 24 percent. The morale is amazing with a totally can-do culture. We're having no problems doing add-ons, long days. And uh, I have uh, I have become much more engaged now with the surgery center, and I'm meeting with them on a very regular basis, and I'll never let my guard down again. Uh, the result of this whole thing, we had about a $200,000 loss, closing for two months. Um, and, uh, you know, it was torture taking our cases across town. So what are the lessons that I learned kind of in closing here? You know, one, every time I let my down, my, my guard down with uh, leadership by abdication, I lose. You know, it's easy to, to look at the surgery center. You know, we focus on how to get patients in the door and how do we get the customer experience ideal in the practice. But you cannot let your guard down and become complacent. And I don't know what complacency is or success is, but I know the last hurdle before success is complacency. And every time I do that, I get burned. So now in 2020, we have monthly meetings um, that follow a very specific agenda that I put together. It takes about 90 minutes. I go through the KPIs, but more importantly, um, I have a very open-ended questioning format that I go through and I get all the information I need. Um, we basically paid off all the debt. Even this year with two months of being closed to COVID, uh, we are in the black and we've created this new culture of winning and accountability and profitability. And our goal now is to um, is basically to scale ourselves up and what it allows me to do, you know, you see, and this is this is the benefit, okay, you know, to do three, uh, you know, three to three facelifts a day, three or four rhinoplasties in a day, and actually a couple weeks ago I did five in one day. There's no way I could do that in the hospital setting, just no way. Um, so from an economy, you know, from an economy scale and efficiency point of view, um, you know, there there's there are huge intangible benefits, but you cannot take your eye off the ball when, with the surgery center. Our new approach now is to grow organically. And we are not this way. We're not dependent on outside doctors. Uh, it's we have two plastics. You know, we have two plastic surgeons in the group, two face, three, two, three facial plastic surgeons. And where we win is on, uh, you know, the, the efficiency that uh, we have now that we couldn't. And um, it's just the quality of work, and it's all in one place. So in closing, was it worth it? Um, the short answer is yes. Um, I couldn't scale up where I'm at without the surgery center. Um, 
It's it's not a wildly profitable business, but a profitable business has value. I mean, I could sell it. We can sell the surgery center. The shareholders, if we sell it, they walk away and they do okay. Um, it makes the practice more profitable. That's probably number one thing. The surgical volume bringing that also brings in and feeds our non-surgical practice because we have um, that there, the quality of life and efficiency for the doctors uh, and lack of frustration um, makes it worthwhile. And it keeps on, it keeps our cosmetic fees reasonable and we have control. I'm going to finish by telling you one last story. Um, I was doing consult, some con- guidance and consulting for a group out of British Columbia very successful facial plastic surgeon. Um, and the woman who runs his group um, was telling me, when I asked, you know, what are your biggest struggles with your frustrations? There are, so if, if you want, if you think the bigger government, you think that having the government more involved in healthcare is a good thing, you're wrong. So this guy has primarily an aesthetic practice, right? So faceless rhinoplasties. The freestanding ambulatory surgery centers in town um, are struggling because they, there are more and more mandates coming down from the government for them that they have to comply with. And let me just tell you one of them that would put the nail in the coffin and close us. They now want them to go from a 10-foot ceiling to a 12-foot ceiling. No rationale behind this, by the way, until you understand where, where it's coming from. You can't do that. I mean, I, how could I possibly raise the ceiling in a building that's got an, another level above it? It will put these surgery centers at it. And I said to the woman who was their MBA running the group, I said, why would they do that? And she said, very simple. She said, very simple because what the government um, doesn't really believe in aesthetic or cosmetic surgery. And, and they really want it. And, uh, and, and furthermore, because they support and financially doctors going through the educational training process and they support that whole thing, Right. Then the doctors go out and don't really contribute to the uh, to the insurance based magistry or whatever you want to call it of taking care of patients. They go out and they basically uh, have a cosmetic practice. It's their way of pushing doctors back away from cosmetic and back into the um, insurance based industry where they want them. And by pushing more of them, they can push, they can push the fees down. You see, it's just what we've allowed them to do by calling us providers and backfilling with nurse practitioners and PAs in a lot of the, in the primary care practices. It's, it's devaluing the physician. Um, It's brilliant. Quite frankly, if you, if you uh, are, are, you know, believe in what the government believes in pushing doctors out of cosmetic. So I believe it's important that we, do keep our aesthetic, our um, our ambulatory surgery centers, and we keep them open, and we we have something to push back against the government. Because if I can tell you that you know just dealing with Medicare and the mandates, um, they're becoming more and more onerous. If this gets pushed down into the non Medicare uh, regula- uh, regulation of Triple H C, it it could be the end to all of us. So. So listen, I really appreciate you listening to my podcast. I hope you've gotten something from it. Share it. Send me an email if you find it useful. Tell me topics you want to hear more about. Uh, I've made every mistake out there, and I love mentoring and sharing and teaching these things. I get as much or more from teaching uh, than I do from uh, from um, you know from doing it myself. So uh, I appreciate 
that. I have a book. It's uh, The White Coat Entrepreneur. And if you get on my website, DrEdwinWilliams.com, send me an email. We'll send you a copy. Um, and uh, so, again, thanks for listening. And um, give me some feedback. And hope you have a good day. 